The information provided by Munro Partners is general information and is for educational purposes only. The podcast is not intended to include or constitute as financial product advice. You should obtain independent advice from a licensed professional advisor before making any investment decision. The views held by Munro Partners are current at the time of recording and are subject to change. Information about the Munro Funds is available at munropartners.com.au. Munro Partners is a corporate authorised representative of Munro Asset Management Limited, AFSL 480509. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Invest in the Journey podcast. In this episode, we are casting our minds to Egypt where the 2022 COP27 conference has just come to a close. My name is Taylor Bree Casey and sitting down with me today is Munro's Responsible Investment Manager, Mike Haroot, to talk me through the major events that happened at the conference. Hi, Mike. It's so great to have you back again. Really good to be on the podcast, Taylor. And there's been a lot of media coverage this week um, and the past few weeks about COP27. Before we get into the nitty gritty of it all, could you maybe just give us a little bit of context? Um, what is COP27 and what does it stand for? Sure. So, yes, uh, COP27 is essentially shorthand for the 27th Conference of Parties. And then the next question is clearly the parties to what? Yes. And this is the parties to the UN Climate Agreement of 1992. So I guess they haven't ha- quite happened every year, but this is essentially the annual conference globally to talk about uh, climate change and, and, and what to do about it. And do you know why it was started? Well, I mean, essentially it was uh, clearly an increasing recognition of the science of climate change and of the, the need to come to some global solutions to this uh, problem. And it, and, it, and it continues to evolve, as we'll discuss, uh, I think, uh, mm-hmm. shortly as well. And how, how often does it occur? Yeah, so it's essentially it's, it's, an annual, it's an annual event. Uh, last year, obviously, it was in Glasgow, this year in Egypt, and next year in Dubai. So following on from what you just said, so obviously last year it was in Glasgow, like you said. How has the world changed since last year's conference? Sure. So maybe just before touching on Glasgow, I'll just touch on COP21, which was in Paris, which obviously uh, resulted in the Paris Agreement. Which the monumental, glo- yes. The monumental, <laughs> um, you know, probably the most influential COP, which resulted in the Paris Agreement. So that set us to, you know, set, set the parties to that conference, being global nations, to the goal of achieving net zero emissions and trying to do that by, by the middle of this century to have uh, a global warming outcome of well below two degrees and trying to achieve 1.5 degrees. So that's part of the, the, the broader kind of three, four-year context, five-year context. In the nearer term, obviously, what's happened since COP26 in Glasgow, clearly the Ukraine war, Ukraine and Russia conflict, and given the importance of Russian gas to Europe, that's, that's clearly been a, uh, a key turning point in terms of you know, in, in the short term, perhaps increasing the requirement to use other fossil fuels such as coal in Europe, which is a clearly negative. But longer term, I think aligning the requirements around energy security and decarbonisation. So previously, those things were thought of as, you know, I think, being a bit more opposed to one another. And now increasingly, there's a recognition that uh, decarbonised energy, especially from renewables, it's actually a way to increase your energy security to not then be reliant on Russian gas. That's probably the first one. The second one is more around countries have made these pledges to the COP. So in the Australian example, we have recently increased our ambition to get to 43% reduction by 2030. 
what then needs to happen is obviously to implement that domestically. You know, what are the laws, what are the reg- regulations you need within your own country to actually achieve that? And I think what's talked about in the past on this pod- podcast uh, in the US, it's clearly the Inflation Reduction Act, which has been a key, I guess, change since Glasgow, where the US has now really got 10 years plus of policy certainty, similarly to the, to the EU, actually. So they, they have their Fit for 55 plan, which is to reduce their emissions by 55% to 2030. And there were some concerns or questions around, okay, well, if in the short term, at least, the Europe has to go back to coal, what does that mean? Um, but they've reiterated those goals and, in fact, strengthened their ambitions again through something called Repower EU. So overall, I think, yeah, those two, I think, probably are the key things that have happened between now and then. So a lot of le- legislation has happened between last year's COP and, and this year's COP. What impact did the Inflation Reduction Act have on this year's conference? Yeah, so, I mean, clearly the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, I guess, came you know, before this year's conference, and it's a massive tail, tailwind really for the US to decarbonize. But I think in these global forums, obviously the US is a big international uh, you know, superpower and they have influence globally. So what they did bring to COP27 was a stronger position in terms of, look, we, we're, we're very serious about this. We, we're, you know, sort of putting our money where our mouth is essentially. Mm-hmm. It's nearly a $400 billion um, you know, package, which, as I said, which goes for a very long time. So it basically, I think, improves their ability to influence others. It also, I think, pushes along the innovation and the learning curve, I suppose, because they're incentivizing, you know, some of this technology, which is still quite new, for example, hydrogen to, to occur faster. And really it kind of puts the pressure back onto the EU mm-hmm. and other countries as well to also strengthen their uh, ambitions. And if you sort of rewind this back to, you know, the Trump administration where they essentially said, we're pulling out of the Paris Agreement, we don't want to participate in any of this, it's a massive change, you know, if you look at it on a sort of a five, six-year time horizon as well. So I guess they're almost leading by example. Yeah, exactly. And they're, and they're, and they're implementing what they've, what they've promised, mm-hmm. which is a real kind of really positive to see. So loss and damage appeared to be a key takeaway from COP27. Could you provide a bit more of like a general summary um, of this year's conference and any key discussions? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, before talking about loss and damage, I suppose there's a little bit of context uh, required. So first of all, there's essentially two things that need to be done in response to climate change. One is mitigation, which is essentially to try to turn the global economy and human societies into a, a low carbon economy. So that's things like renewable energy, energy efficiency, and so forth that you know, Monroe actively invests in. The other is obviously, you know, we've already essentially, quite sadly, locked in more than one degree of global warming and are on track, again, unfortunately, to exceed what the Paris Agreement aims to do. What that brings, obviously, is the physical impacts of climate change, so increased uh, severe weather events and so forth. And so there are two components within the COP framework to deal with that. One is adaptation, which is how do we make physical assets resilient to physical impacts of climate change? And the second one is loss and damage, which is there will be and there has been damage to physical infrastructure, physical assets, people's you know, livelihoods. You know, think of, for example, the uh, floods in recently in, in places like Pakistan. And how do we yeah, fund the restoration of, of all of that? And I think part of the context too of COP being held in Egypt is developing countries tend to feel the brunt of physical impacts of climate change, whereas the developed countries are, you know, obviously have better infrastructure and so forth. And we're, you know, let's be honest, responsible for 
you know, emitting the vast majority of uh, fossil fuels to create the problem in the first place. So historically, the COP hasn't actually had much around and much of an agreement around loss and damage. And you can understand why, because the developed countries are, I guess, reticent to admit they're the ones who primarily you know, emitted the CO2 and continue to do so. And B, because um, you know, clearly in the current macroeconomic context, it's, um, it's challenging domestically and politically to say we're going to dedicate a whole bunch of funds to pairing damage in developing countries. So that, that was sort of the, the context to it. But they, they have agreed to a general sort of concept of a loss and damage fund at the COP. Uh, it's, I think it's still quite early in terms of the detail. So the structure is unknown, how it's going to be implemented, that's unknown. And or most importantly, probably who pays and how those mechanisms work is also still unknown. I think it's, you know, it's a reminder of you know, the cost of inaction. So if we don't decarbonize, there's a cost of inaction, and, which is obviously these physical impacts. I think there's also a little bit of a political sort of feedback loop here too, where the, you know, the physical impacts then drive more action to actually decarbonize to avoid even worse uh, physical impacts. So that, that's probably one of the key sort of takeaways, which is again sort of outside what you typically think about uh, when you think about climate change and um, the mitigation aspect. So you said that there's no like specific details around how um, this is going to work. And my understanding is Australia also hasn't specifically committed to this either. Is that correct? Australia is obviously part of the, the COP and it's a joint agreement. But, you know, as I said, really, so I think, you know, in that sense, you know, we have, but there's no, as far as I know, no specific commitment in terms of funding and the structure of it all. So it still needs to be worked out. And I mean, one of the things that you can kind of look at as an example is the adaptation funding, which is also, again, developed countries primarily funding adaptation efforts in developing countries. And they, they have goals around how much should be allocated each year. And th- those have never been met, even though those levels are apparently also inadequate. So still a long way to go in terms of the detail. But I think f- for me, the takeaway is this is a physical phenomenon and there needs to be allocation of capital and effort and investment into adaptation to avoid some of these loss and damage uh, situations as well. And just following on from that, we were recently talking uh, about COP27 and and about doing this podcast and you reminded me of a quote by Yuval Noah Harari who was the author of Sapiens and he said, climate change is a global problem that requires global cooperation. Were there any signs of increasing or decreasing cooperation? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really – it's a really – Interesting point, I think, that, you know, that he made and obviously that others have made. I mean, clearly we have one atmosphere and the concentration of CO2, you know, doesn't discriminate around which countries sort of uh, have that. So the reason why there is a COP is obviously because it's a global problem that needs uh, global cooperation. I think clearly one of the key relationships in the efforts to decarbonise the economies between China and the US and so earlier this year, if you remember, Nancy Pelosi went to visit uh, Taiwan, mm-hmm. which obviously wasn't very well received by, by China. And one of the fallouts of that was that China ceased to cooperate with the US on climate change from that time. But what we saw pleasingly at the, at the COP was that they did hold discussions there. And then also, it's interesting, these global conferences tend to happen in groups, um, but there's also the G20, obviously, yes. uh, recently as well where Joe Biden and uh, Xi Jinping also met as well. So these are sort of small signals, but it, it seems to be that you know, the US and China still do want to cooperate. 
steps in the right it, direction. When it, when it comes to climate change, when it comes to climate change. I, I suppose one other risk to that is potentially the Invo Inflation Reduction Act does have some elements sort of wanting to essentially create a domestic uh, battery uh, manufacturing capability within the US, mm -hmm. which essentially kind of freezes out Chinese companies potentially from being part, part of that uh, supply chain. So there'll be bumps along the way. I'm not, um, I'm not uh, I guess, overly optimistic, but it's a positive sign. Were there any particular talks or events that you found particularly interesting in terms of Monroe and our strategies here? Yeah, I mean, so there was clearly a lot of discussion around energy and you know, how to transition the energy system, which we're obviously very interested in. But in terms of new areas, I think one thing that really stood out for me was an increasing focus on agriculture and food security. Again, if you think about the context of the, this COP being held in, uh, in Africa and Egypt, I think those issues around food security, again, part of the driver as well being the Ukraine-Russia conflict, have come into increasing uh, focus you know, for countries and, and for investors and others. And, and so it was really positive to see more of a focus on agriculture. So, I mean, with agriculture, it's definitely part of the problem in that you know, something like 25%, these estimates sort of vary, but some, something like 25% potentially of global emissions come from agriculture. So you can think of things like you know, livestock um, and methane emissions from, from livestock. Agriculture is obviously also exposed to the physical impacts of climate change, so extreme weather events, but also sort of the chronic increase in temperatures creates uh, challenges in terms of certain crops and where you can grow them and how well they grow, etc. Uh, so they're exposed to the physical impacts of climate change, but, but agriculture we think can also be part of the solution. And so it's, it's a very multifaceted relationship between agriculture and, and climate change. So in terms of the solution, there's obviously you can, and, and companies do do this, you can capture emissions from agricultural waste and turn that into bioenergy. So that's sort of one option and you can grow crops to, uh, again, to use as essentially feedstock for biofuels as well. So yeah, I think it was a new area really, I think as far as I understand in terms of the discussions around the COP, but certainly something that I presume will be an increasing focus. Mike, could you maybe give me some companies that would be impacted by this? Sure. So, I mean, one company which is in our climate change leaders fund is Deere, which is obviously makes the John Deere tractors and other farming equipment. And one thing that they're really focused on is precision agriculture, which I think you know, increases the yields, which for the same amount of land, you can have a higher yield. It also actually, you know, precision agriculture allows them and their customers to reduce their fertilizer use. So nitrogen-based fertilizers obviously have a potential global warming impact. So, you know, using less fertilizer through precision agriculture and being able to target where that fertilizer is put, you know, enables their customers to reduce emissions. And one of the things, you know, which is quite pleasing with John Deere is that they actually have quantitative targets to uh, reduce their customers' emissions. Even though they don't necessarily control their customers' emissions, I think it's quite positive from our perspective that they still want to set uh, targets along those lines. I mean, one of the other things clearly that they're also looking to do along the lines of what I mentioned earlier is helping their customers grow crops, which things like cover crops and other things which aren't necessarily for human consumption, which then can then be, be used to create biofuels, which then can potentially run the very same equipment that they're selling. So they're actually looking to essentially create a sort of circular, yeah, circular sort of loop for, you know, for their customers and create the farming equipment that can actually run off that as well. So I think, you know, clearly there's a lot of innovation going on in the agricultural space and, you know, 
in our view from meeting with the company and, and understanding what they do, clearly seem to be a lot of focus on that topic from them. So fascinating and so many ingenious solutions are coming to, to life. And in your opinion, would you say it was a successful conference? And was it a successful conference? I mean, one of the things coming out of Glasgow was that in terms of the mitigation, there'd be lots of new countries putting even more ambitious targets in place. Apart from Australia, actually, where we obviously we had the change of government, which then led to some changes in the policies, we didn't actually see too many new ambitions. But I think, again, ahead of the COP, there was obviously, the, again, what I mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act, Repower EU, all very strong examples from very large economies around wanting to actually implement and put their money where their mouth is, as I said, in terms of their commitments. So I think that was all very positive. And I should think, again, whilst the details of this fund around the loss and damage are nascent, let's say, we, we haven't kind of gotten to the, well, what will be the structure, how will it be funded, who will do it. I think it's good to see an increasing focus on the physical impacts of climate change. A, because, you know, it's not a question of do, will we ever need to adapt? I think given the, you know, what the science is saying, it is that we have to adapt. And so it's, it's good to see an increasing focus on, on that side of things as well. And yeah, I mean, again, more broadly, just at, at a high level, clearly the fact that these conferences exist and they're attended by all the major economies and major polluters of the world is always positive and you know, we'll await the next one really in Dubai. Yes, we will all be watching quite eagerly. So last time you were on the podcast, you said that your stock of interest at the time was RWE. Has it changed and did COP influence your change? Okay, so my, my first comment is that I like all my children uh, <laughs> in the same way I like, I like all the stocks in within, our, in within our fund. But one that I thought would be interesting to talk about in the context of today's discussion would be was our Quanta Services, which is a company that we've recently invested in into our, our climate change our leaders fund. So Quanta is essentially a company that provides uh, services to electricity infrastructure. So they build and maintain transmission and distribution systems for energy infrastructure and electricity uh, as well. One of the interesting things when you're thinking about it from that climate change perspective is to decarbonize, we need to electrify. So we need to go from obviously combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles. That requires a lot more energy to be flying around the place. And we know we need the infrastructure like transmission and distribution to be put into place. So clearly Quanta is a company that you know, benefits from decarbonization because decarbonization means electrification. The other thing which is, again, interesting in this context of the physical impacts of climate change is that things like bushfires and other extreme weather events clearly put a strain on energy infrastructure. I mean, we've obviously had blackouts here in Australia. And if you look at California, for example, in the 15 years, I think, of 2016, something like $700 million worth of damage was done to electricity distribution systems as, as a result of extreme weather. And so, you know, this company, you know, provides a solution essentially to that, which is that they help rebuild it all and, and make it more resilient to future extreme weather events as well. So I just think it's an, it's an interesting example of a company that sort of leveraged both to the decarbonisation, but then also uh, provides a solution to the physical risks, you know, to some degree as well. Wonderful. Well, Mike, thank you so much for sitting down and dissecting such a, a topical issue with me. My pleasure, Taylor. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. We have plenty of content on the Inflation Reduction Act and climate as an area of interest. 
To watch or learn more about our Monroe Climate Change Leaders Fund, head to our website. <laughs>